Marty, there seems to be a big disconnect between the economic recovery and the data coming out of China, albeit it is a bit mixed, versus market sentiment and, and just investors still a bit unenthusiastic about China. It just feels a little directionless, doesn't it, Catherine? And, I, I, you know, I, we're investing as we always do with looking at fundamentals and, and, you know, thinking about the long term. But you're right, this this sort of decoupling, if you will, of fundamentals from, from markets is is interesting to watch, although, you know, I think it'll play out as it always does where fundamentals trump, but it just could take some time. Yeah, take some time. And also, you know, again, when it comes to China, looking at policy direction and really what is key for the policymakers is this long term sort of demand, domestic demand coming back. And also when it comes to issues such as the environment, you know, big, big priorities there. Hello and welcome to episode 21 of the Investor's Guide to China. I'm Catherine Young, Investment Director at Fidelity International. And I'm Marty Dropkin, Head of Equities, Asia Pacific. So, a global fight against climate change. 2021 was a big year. China's President Xi Jinping pledged that China would hit peak emissions by 2030 and be carbon neutral or net zero by 2060. Then at COP26 in Glasgow, over 100 countries pledged to cut greenhouse gas emissions and eliminate deforestation. Boy, did that come to a screeching halt, Catherine. We had a triple whammy, didn't we? We had Omicron spreading globally. We had the war in Ukraine breaking out. And then the Fed started hiking interest rates. It, It just really impacted everything in the world. And then at least for some people, it looked like fighting climate change took a back seat, didn't it? Because priorities started to change to energy security and economic stability. So back to 2023, and where does this leave China? I mean, there are a lot of question marks about the recovery itself, as well as market sentiment. But if we focus on the climate issue, I mean, China's still the biggest greenhouse gas emitter using certain metrics. And I guess the question really is, has the country slipped on its path to decarbonization, or is progress indeed moving ahead? Yeah, that's right, Catherine. And what we'll talk about today is how much of a priority is climate change for China's policymakers, regulators and companies alike? And what role do markets and investors have to play in this? So, Marty, it's actually great having you in the Hong Kong studio. And also with us is Flora Wang, who's also based in Hong Kong and is our head of stewardship for Asia. Hi, Flora. So let's just cut to the chase. China's pathway to net zero, where are we actually at? Obviously, China is a very important piece of the net zero puzzle because it is the largest emitter today, accounting for about 30% of the global emission. Actually, if we think about it, China actually started reducing its emissions many years ago, although back then it was more of a side effect of the primary objective of air pollution control. But that changed in 2020 when President Xi announced the country's intention to peak carbon by 2030 and reach carbon neutral by 2060. So my view is that China is on track to achieve the 30 peaking and 60 carbon neutral targets. I mean, Ford, do you think that's ambitious enough? Fair challenge. Actually, when you know President Xi announced the target back in 2020, there was a bit of criticism around whether China is actually being ambitious enough because you know 2060 net zero is 10 years later than the 2050 net zero agreed under the Paris um, conference. But if we take a close look, what China is proposing is actually to go from peak carbon to zero carbon in 30 years time. Whereas if we look at most other developed markets and see how 
long it will take them to go from peak carbon to um, net zero, based on their current commitments, it's actually taking much longer than 30 years. And bear in mind that China is actually coming down from a peak level that's going to be much higher than the peak level seen in most other countries. So essentially what China is committed to is a much more drastic emission reduction in a much shorter span of time. So I do think they're being quite ambitious. And would you argue that the country is indeed on track? I guess we can, you know, focus on the top emitting sectors. So that would be your power sector, your transportation sector, and your industrial sector. And in China, these three sectors collectively account for more than 85% of their um, total carbon emission. I think in the transportation sector, China is definitely taking the lead in decarbonizing transportation. You know, the country has seen the fastest adoption of electric vehicles. Last year, um, China sold about 27 million um, cars, and out of that, about 7 million is actually um, new energy vehicles. So these are your pure um, electric vehicles and your hybrid as well. So that's already a EV penetration of about 26%. And that is expected to continue to increase um, this year to a level of around 35, 36%. The picture in the power sector is a bit mixed in that you know China is still quite heavily reliant on coal, uh, which accounts for about 60% of electricity output. Um, and the country is still adding new coal capacity in response to mostly the heightened concerns on energy security. On the other hand, China is actually the largest builder of renewable energies. It's adding more wind and solar than the rest of the world combined in 2021. There is the short-term concerns around energy security and continue to support economic growth before enough renewable actually comes online and also before the power grid is upgraded to a um, state where it can cope with you know, the challenges that come with a, a lot more renewables, you know, the intermittency issue as well as the more decentralized nature of the much wider electrification across different you know, end applications. It's interesting you mentioned the power grid and, and you know, most people know that in China we need to see more solar, wind and, and hydro to decarbonize. But probably fewer people realize that the success of this transition very much relies on the build out of what we call the smart grid. An important part of the success comes down to ultra high voltage better known as UHV power lines. Our head of investments for China, Senen Yun, caught up with our utilities analyst, Bunny Huan, in Shanghai to find out more. We're standing on the site of China's first electric power station, which turned on the lights for Shanghai's bun for the first time back in 1882. This is about two months before Thomas Edison first brought electric lights to lower Manhattan. There's no more power plant anymore. It's actually a busy hotel nowadays. China's electricity grid has really evolved over the past 140 years, and its future really depend on the smart grid. So, Bunny, you know, what is a smart grid, and how essential is it to China's meeting its net zero goals? Actually, uh, smart grid is the opposite concept of traditional power grid system. For traditional power grid system, it's one directional power flow from power generation to end users, and that is based on more predictable, controllable, and centralized power generation. However, for smart grid, it includes a variety of automation and safety protection measures. That is required because, firstly, grid is becoming more complicated with more UHVs, distributed PVs, and EV charging piles. And secondly, grid is becoming more vulnerable with rising percentage of unstable power generated from wind and solar. What do you think are some of the obstacles we're seeing? Particularly also, what are the solutions are there 
like UHV build-out or power storage? And how viable are some of these solutions? The key obstacle is supply and demand mismatch. From supply side, actually most independent power plants are located in western and northern part of China. But for demand, actually most developed cities that require most electricity are based in eastern and southern part of China. So to reduce the transmission losses, firstly, UHV should be required for power transmission from the west to the east. And secondly, power generation from wind and solar is neither stable nor predictable. So that is why power storage is also required. Sounds like a really big undertaking. What kind of uh, investment is really going to make this happen? And um, more importantly, you know, what are the investment opportunities? Definitely a lot of investment is required and a lot of money is required as well. So according to my conversation with the state grid, 550 billion RMB investment this year will be required. To totally solve the consumption bottleneck, CapEx needs to grow at low teens. But according to the current budget constraint, only 5% CAGR is allowed by the government. I look forward to seeing state grid upscaling its investment in the middle of this year. For investment opportunities, there are 21 listed companies providing products for the state grid. One is the leading secondary equipment provider with around 40% stable market share in China. It will help contributing a smarter and more digitalized version of the state grid. Thank you for your insights, Bunny. Thank you, Zainan. Wow, Catherine, that was, that was fascinating. I did not know a lot of what Bunny just talked about, and particularly the need to transport electricity across the country. Yeah, it's always been a question mark that uh, we've had with investors in terms of this sort of the division between West and East in, in, in the country as a whole. And again, some very ambitious plans, really. All right, so Flora, back to you. Let's talk about the regulatory environment. How is that evolving to aid with the transition in China? Policies and regulations have, you know, certainly played a very important role in supporting the um, development of the green sector, such as, you know, electric vehicles and also the entire solar value chain. Another important development is actually the nation's carbon trading market, which went live in 2021 after, you know, the 3060 commitment was announced a year earlier. And I think that's going to play a very important role in China's decarbonization because it puts an explicit price on carbon and changes the economics around carbon. So right now, or going forward, every business, especially you know the high-emitting sectors, will look at carbon very differently. It will become an explicit cost in their business development. Admittedly, um, the national trading system will take time to mature. Um, again, if I compare it to you know the developed markets, for example, um, EU, which has the most mature mandatory carbon trading market actually took them 10 years to calibrate the market and for it to be where it is today with the highest and arguably the most effective on carbon pricing uh, we're seeing across the globe today. So it will take time, you know, for China to actually make, continue to refine the emission trading market for it to be effective. I think a few key things to watch uh, would include the expansion of the sectors that are actually in scope for the emission trading market. Right now, it's only the power sector that is covered by the emissions trading market. And the other key thing is to see when the country is going to move from a system that targets carbon intensity to one that actually targets absolute emissions. So that's going to, again, change the impact fundamentally of 
the um, emission trading system. So would you say that the corporates themselves are supportive or embracing ESG? Absolutely. We do, as you know, an annual survey of our um, sector analysts every year. And one question we've included in the past few years is whether they have seen an uptake from the companies they cover in terms of their ESG performance, their ESG disclosure, and their general attitude towards managing their key environmental and social impacts. And the answer is an emphatic yes across markets, across sectors. And I think that uptake is particularly pronounced in Asia, mostly because you know we're coming from a low base, and that includes China as well. As the name implies, it is a race, and the global race to net zero really is a competitive one. And one of the things that we've noticed, it's, it's been building over the years, is how China and all major economies are scrambling to secure supplies of metals like nickel, cobalt, lithium, that are critical for renewable technologies like electric car batteries, smart grids. When I was in London recently, I had a chance to catch up with James Richards, our senior industry analyst in London who covers the global metals industry to find out more. James, it is great to be in London and see you again. So I've got a few questions for you as part of the the decarbonizing China theme. And maybe I'll just start off with a bigger picture one, which is the competitiveness of China in the race to secure metals. I mean, China is very much in pole position in in this race in that you've had um, the U.S. and, and Europe recently wakening up to the importance of critical mineral supply. And China's been there for many years and is the best positioned of them all by quite some way. Maybe give me a sense of the balance of imports versus how much China has within the country. So China's raw material endowment's not strong. It doesn't have great resources. It has a very, very strong position in processing because obviously it's been, historically, it's been energy um, long, although that's come under challenge in recent years. Uh, But what they have been very, very good at is taking equity positions in overseas resource positions. So that would be for for Indonesia, for nickel. It would be in Australia for lithium and and also Argentina and DRC for for cobalt and, and copper to a degree. All right, James, so let's talk about nickel and Indonesia specifically and how that links to China. So, so it, it's been very difficult for, for Western players to grow nickel production over the last sort of 10 years. Um, but what the Chinese have done is they've gone into Indonesia. Uh, they've grown volumes at a rate that, that wouldn't be achievable elsewhere in the world. And historically, the kind of nickel that you have in Indonesia wouldn't have been considered to be readily usable in, in battery materials. And so what you've seen is the Chinese innovate to create new processes and also to do old processes, which Western companies have generally struggled to make efficient at a fraction of the capital cost that had been considered to be viable historically. So they've they've changed the picture for nickel. Um, Any other metals that you would highlight? People over-focus on lithium, cobalt, um, nickel, which are the three obvious ones. But there's a huge range of commodities that are going to be required to support a transition, you know, rare earth, copper, aluminium. I mean, even if you go down to steel, I mean, you know, more steel is going to be required to support the infrastructure requirements that we're going to need to get to net zero. And so the, the range of commodities that are going to be needed and the difficulty in requiring the required amounts is going to be a real challenge for the world. How does supply chain security sort of link to other things that are going on in the region, specifically with metals? I mean, supply chain security is completely key. China dominates processing, and so the rest of the world is having to build out processing capacity in critical minerals, 
to avoid being China reliant. And China's trying to do the same thing. They don't have a rich uh, lithium raw material endowment, for example, but they're building out quite a significant lithium mining industry um, so that they have control of that. I mean, that obviously comes at a cost. It's more expensive. Uh, there are environmental issues that come with that. Um, but from a supply chain security point of view, you can understand that they want you know, all the levers in their own hands. Well, thanks a lot, James. It's, uh, it's great to see you again and really appreciate your insights. Thanks very much for having me. Marty, just goes to show that China's Belt Road Initiative isn't just about you know building infrastructure, but really digging deeper, so as to speak, and no pun intended, in terms of everything such as, as commodities and, and metals. Well, it's true, Catherine, and, and you will recall we talked about uh, electric vehicles with James Trufford on a recent podcast, and it links to exactly what J- to what James Richard said. Um, this is this is really topical, and a lot of countries and a lot of companies are focused on how to uh, improve their access to metals. So Flora is still here with us, and uh, I'd like to introduce Dana J. Fadness, uh, who's one of our portfolio managers at uh, at Fidelity. And DJ, it's nice to be here in Hong Kong with you as well. Likewise, thanks for having me. DJ, China is ramping up coal-fired power stations to meet near-term electricity demand. We also know, and as James mentioned, in the longer term, it will need to produce more steel production, again, to build out the infrastructure for things like wind farms or UHV transmission towers, like we heard from Bunny. And all that is required to transition to net zero. These obviously come with a very high carbon impact. So how is China balancing these kinds of shorter term compromises to better aid their longer term goals? So it is true that um, you know China needs to spend a lot of money to build infrastructure that's required for this green transition that the country is trying to achieve. But I think we also need to look at the whole picture in totality. If you look at traditional sectors like property and infrastructure, these are operating at actually much lower levels than what it was in the previous cycle. So in a way, there's an offset to all the capex that's going into green uh, kind of capex, uh, offset by the lower level of activity elsewhere. So I think it's probably um, incorrect to say that these things are additive in terms of carbon footprint. In fact, I would say there's been recent talk about shutting down some of the steel capacity. I'm not sure whether that happens, but as the sort of news flow shows, there's a chance that actually steel production doesn't go up over time. But I think what's also important to realize in China, and like Flora was mentioning, there's a lot happening on green um, infrastructure and development. So if you think about the numbers, you know, this year we'll have... EV penetration of 36-37%. Out of global installations for solar, about 38-39% will likely be in China. And if you look at wind, that number is into its high 40s. So China is spending a lot of money trying to build um, renewable energy, and that's definitely going to change its mix over time. What's the alternative, though, Floor? I mean, the impact of this transition on the communities and livelihoods, surely we'd see some disruption here. Well, it's, it's a very, very good point, and it's a debate that we often have in the ESG space where um, the objective of Yi not, is not always aligned with you know, what we're looking after under the S. But I guess in this area, China is in a better place in the sense that workers' welfare, you know, making sure people are looked after has always been, I think, a focus for the government. And another fact is that a lot of these sectors that are in the most urgent need of transition are actually state-owned 
companies. And they have always been, I think, known for um, when it comes to not carrying layoffs. You know, I think there has always been this trade-off between the um, efficiency, operational efficiency, and I suppose employees' welfare when it comes to state-owned enterprises. So we've actually spoken to you know some of the power generation companies in China and talked to them about what they're going to do with you know um, their staff that might be working for a coal fire power generation um, plant today. And they have already started process of retraining those staff to, in a way, repurpose them for the new solar and wind farms you know, they're building out. So I think this is going to be a challenge globally when it comes to the green transition, how we make it also a just transition. But I think the challenge is probably to a lesser degree in China, just given you know the state-owned nature of these sectors that are most impacted. DJ. From a regional perspective, would you then say that China is ahead of others in terms of this whole impact issue? Well, I don't think um, you could generalize that. I, I think, you know, Asia is a very diverse region. So different countries are on their own sort of different trajectories. And even there, you know, you see different levels of support when it comes to different industries. So, you know, you look at, you know, countries um, in the developed parts of Asia, uh, relatively developed parts of Asia, you definitely see a lot more uh, change in the way companies are run with the view to improve uh, you know, efficiency and emissions. Uh, but there are other countries, you know, some of the countries in ASEAN, for example, you know, which are just starting out. Um, you know, Philippines is an example where they do have goals and they do have a desire, but you know, it's an early stage of formulation. So you know, it's a diverse region, different pace of things. But I think what we need to understand is that rather than comparing between countries, I think it's important to realize that they're all moving sort of together towards a common goal, and that's the important part for us. So SOEs, in fact, work in the favor, or the structure works in their favor. You know, we've made a lot of comparisons already about China versus or relative to other countries. DJ, in your view, why do they have this advantage of being able to, one, have such ambitious targets, and two, be able to move so quickly? Well, I think it's also down to the structure of the economy, where if you think about China, I think once there's a clear alignment in terms of leadership thought, I think it sort of percolates down to the SOEs, but also to the private enterprises um, and further down. I think what's also interesting about China is they've broken things down into medium-term targets. So I think once the whole um, system is aligned to drive a certain objective, you know, history has shown us that China can achieve um, even some of the ambitious goal it has set. So I think it's to do with the structure of the economy, the structure of the system, um, and that leads itself to uh, faster execution, I think. So, DJ, let's go back a little to what James was saying about Indonesia being potentially a dirtier source of nickel. Do other countries actually even want a piece of the Indonesian nickel pie? Yeah, firstly, if you step back a bit, you'll see that you know China's been always uh, looking for sources of material globally, whether it's copper, you know, nickel, iron ore from Australia. Uh, I think nickel is interesting because it plays into this whole thematic of EV transition, and we do need a lot of nickel for that transition. Now, you mentioned Indonesian nickel is a dirtier source, but I, I think it's just a lower grade source, which can be upgraded. And this is where the Chinese have made a big difference. So if you think about Indonesia, where the Chinese are pretty much involved in every project which is out there, they've added technology like the HPAL, which is an interesting technology which they have managed to do at much lower capital costs. And already we have a couple of plants operating there. So that's made a big difference in terms of supply of nickel. So yes, while Indonesian nickel is lower grade, the Chinese have found a way to upgrade it such that it can be used in EV batteries, which does need higher grade material. While we're on that topic, DJ, let's talk about scope three emissions. Where does the accountability actually stop? 
Well, it's a fair question in that, you know, when um, Chinese manufacturers are sourcing material from, you know, let's just say example, nickel from Indonesia, yes, there is a scope three implication and the accountability does exist for that. Now, the way we do it at Fidelity and Flora and I engage with a lot of companies involved in this space and we are encouraging them, you know, to step up disclosures. And we also want them to formulate plans on how they plan to deal with these emissions in terms of having targets to reduce these scope three emissions once they've learned how to measure them. Okay. And DJ, you and I talk a lot about the China plus one dynamic, you know, which, which or other countries are, are entering the fray. Uh, you know, when we think about nickel or, or anything, you know, any part of the supply chain, you look across the whole region. How does that play? I think there are a few drivers for China plus one. I think, you know, firstly, if you think about Chinese demographics, which clearly are adverse from the standpoint having a large supply of labor to work in factories, and that too is coming at higher wages, I think there's a compulsion on um, companies to diversify away from China to a China plus one. But the other two factors also have been COVID, which showed us how supply chain resiliency is so important. And thirdly, you know, if you think about geopolitics, where um, you know some of these recent events have highlighted to companies that they need to have a second source, and that's exactly how China Plus One is playing out. And those opportunities are actually across the world. If you think about my universe, which is Asia, you know, as an example, you know, companies in India are significantly benefiting, whether it's you know assembling smartphones, uh, building servers. But also in the case of our discussion today, a lot of electric vehicle battery components as well as uh, you know, components that go into these cars are being made in India. And I expect, you know, whether it's Mexico or India or some of the ASEAN countries, manufacturing will gradually move as companies implement the China plus one strategy. So many winners out there and that's our job is to figure out who these winners are and deploy capital behind them. What about from a CapEx perspective? I mean, we haven't really seen the CapEx cycle turn positive, but when you look at the commodity companies or these players in this space, are they spending capex? And they, you know, in fact, are they moving from, let's say, a coal producer to spending more capex in renewables? Is this a tangible sort of thesis or theme we're seeing? I think what we're seeing um, is a lot of companies which have historically uh, been associated with some of the uh, polluting industries or capex. They clearly are making a transition. So you know, you look at Chinese utilities. You know, almost all Chinese uh, utility companies have a plan to change their mix of energy towards a more renewable mix. Uh, there are also specialized companies which are also investing in a renewable mix. But also what we need to note is that there's a domestic economy around, you know, wind towers and, you know, wind blades and, you know, all the capex that you need to set up some of these um, renewable energy sources. So you're absolutely right. I think there's a clear capex reorientation that's happened. Uh, to do with the mix of companies, but also the supply chain is there and that enables that mix to change faster. Yeah, another area we're seeing um, or we're um, having a lot more clarity on the um, CapEx um, plan in the next few years is, you know, as Bunny mentioned, the smart grid um, area where, you know, for China to be able to actually make effective use of all these renewable energies that's coming online. It's very important for the um, grid to actually be upgraded, to be digitalized so that they can actually cope with this decentralized production of power, but also decentralized usage of power. So I think that's an area where DJ and I actually have been looking quite closely at. You know, potentially there are uh, a few um, interesting investment opportunities. What other opportunities are you seeing, Flora? 
Well, it's more um, they're, I think, you know, suppliers of the state grid, you know, um, companies that manufacture the equipment and also the software that's required by the state grid to actually upgrade itself. Um, there are not a lot of players in that space, but, you know, it's, it's definitely, you know, an area where we're spending a bit more time on. I want to come back to this topic of SOEs that you mentioned earlier, Flora, and recently SOEs stocks have, have started to perform a little bit. And I'm curious, where do you think the opportunities are? Do you think SOEs have run a little bit too far, perhaps? And how does that link to some of the decarbonization, you know, even more broadly than we've talked about? Yeah, maybe I'll kick off first and Flora can add to uh, to this question. I think it's an interesting one in that we've seen many iterations of SOE reform over the years. So this is not a new concept. Um, and to that extent, you know, we exceed the intent of the government to try and improve the way SOEs are run. Now, I think a few critical things need to fall in place, including an alignment with minority shareholders through an incentive program for management. We are hearing that some of that is beginning to take shape, but, you know, it's very early days. Uh, but also there's a lot of uh, inefficiency sitting at the SOEs uh, in many cases. Um, balance sheet inefficiencies, but also operational inefficiencies. And we need to see a targeted plan to capture that. I feel like where we are right now, it's still a big thematic in that we haven't seen the details. I think we know there is potential, um, but we don't know what the action plan is. So I think for this rally, which is underway, and I think the rally is also underway because it's an underowned space with a lot of potential and cheap valuations. But for this to sustain, we need concrete action. Otherwise, like many of the previous episodes, it might fizzle out. No, I fully agree. I think when it comes to SOEs from an investment perspective, the key challenge is always with its efficiency on capital management and on the operational side. I think on capital management, there is probably lower hanging fruit in that they could just improve their shareholder return policy. And we've seen a few SOEs already doing that. And there is a re-rating happening in that space already. But for operational efficiency, I think it will take more time for the market to gain more conviction or for the more discerning component of the market. Market to gain conviction. Do, do you see a difference in SOEs and private-owned companies in the way they participate in ESG or, you know, in, in the whole decarbonization effort? I suppose there is a natural divide between the SOE and private space in terms of the line of businesses they are engaged in. As I mentioned, you know, um, power sector is a big, a high emitting sector, industrial sector is a high emitting sector. So for these two, um, they tend to be dominated by SOE players. So they have to play a role. And there is a lot of, you know, top down sort of things happening that's actually pushing these companies to go forward, which is the reason why I'm actually fairly positive about China achieving its, you know, 3060 goals, because, you know, the government can just tell that SOEs to do, you know, certain things. On the POE space, I see more longer term sort of development that's also important, you know, technology development, um, the more cutting edge technology around, you know, carbon capture. The SOEs also is a part of that, but I think the more advanced technology that is going to require a lot more market oriented sort of incentives will more likely come from the POE space. Marty, you know, I, I'm sitting here and I'm just thinking the criticism and negative sentiment about China and this opaqueness, especially when it comes to government policy. When you actually look, the policy is very, very clear and the companies and, you know, they're very much acting on the, this, these top down, very ambitious but I reckon, and as DJ and Flora have highlighted, achievable goals. Well, exactly. And listen to the statistics that we've heard about 
EV penetration, solar penetration, wind, wind turbine, and, and you know, overall wind penetration. I mean, this is tangible improvement and tangible impact on a country. So time will tell in terms of the investment opportunities playing out. So that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you to our guests, Flora Wong and DJ Fadness, and to our other contributors, Senan Yuan, Bunny Huang, and James Richards. And thank you for listening. If you want to read more about what's being covered today, please go to your local Fidelity website or visit fidelityinternational.com. The producers were Rory Fogadil-Goff, with production support from Tommy Sue, Keith Chun, and Kim Juko. The editor is Richard Edgar. Until next time, from all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.